As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me, tell the Israelites to go forward? But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his armies, his chariots and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went up after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still, says Moses to the Israelites. A band of unarmed, disenfranchised, dispossessed, disorganized slaves floundering in a sea of reeds with a grand military machine of Pharaoh, swords drawn, horses thundering, generals roaring in hot pursuit. In the never-never land of the Saturdays of our lives, no longer altogether dead as we were on Friday, but certainly not resurrected, as we hope to be on Sunday, Pharaoh's army is often more persuasive than the Lord is. Of all things we might do at that moment when we are looking for salvation, keeping still might be the least attractive alternative. Pharaoh's army, which looks today like our culture, our wealth, our employment, our society, our illnesses, and yes, even parts of our own minds and bodies which dominate other enslaved and forgotten parts is so much more vivid than the elusive, mysterious, hoped for, but mistrusted God. Rolling around in the tomb on Saturday, waiting to find resurrection somewhere, but expecting every moment for Pharaoh to strike down all hope, keeping still and trusting seems extraordinarily difficult and foolish. It's so risky to trust in the intimacy of God, in the good intention of God, in the power of God to take a tiny outcast boy left to drown in the Nile River, and make him the hero of a nation, the father of three great religions. It's so counter to everything else we do to believe that in some completely unknowable and non-scientific way, before time had any meaning whatsoever, God deposited in each of us the stuff that it takes to get to Sunday. Believing that, really depending on that, would mean belief in the power of God beyond the power of ourselves. Looking right up the noses of Pharaoh's angry horses who are breathing fire in our faces, it's nothing short of crazy to be still and wait. Wait for that hidden, neglected part of God lodged before the universe began to start to wake up. But there it is. Pharaoh will never change. Powers and dominations, external or internal, will remain as oppressive, as alienating, as completely immersed in death as ever. God will remain God. Interested in humanity, moving in when invited, always committed to life. 
So the only really moving part left is with us. We can panic and move back to slavery with Pharaoh, or we can be still and feel the deep, silent, new life, long neglected, but emerging now when called upon, that is inside us. It's a risk. It's true. In this culture, we don't trust very easily. But we've come this far, and we're here now. This story has been passed on to us for three millennia to give us the courage to endure these Saturdays, to pay attention to the force for life inside ourselves, to look at Pharaoh and know that there is something stronger which will save us. Take courage. The sea of reeds will part. Pharaoh will drown. And we will dance with Miriam yet. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand, besides the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. My fruit is better than the gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, endowing with wealth those who love me and filling their treasures. To those without sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. Does not wisdom call? Does not wisdom call? I'm reminded of a story from the Zen tradition. Some of you may have heard me tell before. One of my favorite stories of a young man who wants to come to a monastery to enter the monastic life seeking enlightenment. So when he comes to the monastery, he's eager to impress the elders with his spiritual knowledge. He wants to be deemed worthy of this place in the monastery. So after he's been there just a short time, the master of the monastery invites him in for a cup of tea. So they sit down across the table, and the master begins to pour his tea. And the cup fills, and he keeps pouring the tea. And the tea spills out all over the table and all over the young man. And the young man says, the cup is full, what are you doing? And the master says, yes, and you also are full. So I imagine this young man, we can imagine that he came to this monastery already having some spiritual knowledge, maybe some wisdom. But the master is telling him, no matter what you think you know, you lack that one essential thing the most important thing, 
that humility and openness to learn and be present. The Zen tradition calls this the beginner's mind. Christianity, it is humility. Our scripture today tells us that wisdom is calling at the gates. What a beautiful personification of wisdom calling all of us. Wisdom is abundant. It's there for the taking. And indeed, we're very lucky and blessed to receive this tradition, to have access to so much wisdom in our Judeo-Christian heritage. As we see today in our reading, it is available to you. It was so important in ancient Israel, this tradition of wisdom, that wisdom was even considered an aspect of God, the presence of God, which was called Shekinah. A feminine aspect of God was wisdom. And we know the story of Solomon. As soon as he becomes king, God comes to him in the night and says, Solomon, ask me for anything. So you can imagine as a person or as a king, what are some things that you would ask for? But Solomon doesn't ask him for riches or power, power over his enemies, to expand his territory. Solomon asks God for wisdom. And God is very pleased by that. So all of this is wonderful. Wisdom is available to us. Wisdom calls. It's there. We don't have to generate it. It's there for the taking, so to speak. But there is a cautionary note in all of this. The lesson of that young man at the monastery. Because wisdom is not just spiritual knowledge that we can amass and put on our resume. That deeper wisdom, that most fundamental wisdom, is how do we hold it? What do we do with it? Just like anything in life, really, it's not what we have, it's what we do with it. This certainly applies to our religion. And this applies especially to the Bible. The Bible, which is so full of wisdom, and which has been used for horrible things and for the most elevated expressions of the human spirit, for both. It's what we do with it. And the Bible itself has a warning about that. If we think about why is Jesus in conflict with the religious leaders of his day, they have plenty of spiritual knowledge. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards. It's not a lack of spiritual knowledge that they have. It's how they use it, their lack of compassion. They use their spiritual knowledge as a way of being more than other people, perhaps looking down on other people, or simply as a means to power. And the Apostle Paul quite eloquently warns us about this. He who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But all who love God are known by him. So this deeper sense of wisdom is not so much what we know, but it's allowing ourselves to be known by God. Emptying ourselves and humbling ourselves so that God who is wisdom may be present with us and guide us. And what better example can there be of that than Jesus Christ? Here as we're perched between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which is about to happen. Jesus, the scripture said, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. This is the deeper wisdom, the deeper example for us. So as we approach this resurrection and as we approach this table, let this reality touch our hearts to be stripped of our egos, of our pretensions, of our possessions, 
and to come with the beginner's mind, with empty hands, ready for the presence of God, still, as Annette said. And let us keep this with us as we go forth through the Easter season, in those moments when perhaps our ego is creeping in, as mine always does, to remember this feeling in our hearts of Jesus emptying himself. And also, not only in those moments of ego, but in those moments of trial, which are bound to come. Those moments when life is stripping us of everything for us. We don't have to do it. Life is doing it. But remembering that Jesus is with us through all of that, because he first went through that door of suffering and death, and he takes every step with us, calling us toward that life and that light. So let us sink this sink into our hearts, into our bones, as we approach this table and we celebrate this resurrection, emptying ourselves so that we may be filled with God. In Jesus' name, amen. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them, and there were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had covered upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied, as I was commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord then I, when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O oh my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, 
and I will place you on your own soil, then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. This vision of Ezekiel gives us a very stark and powerful vision of the people of Israel and how they are feeling. They are in exile. Their nation has been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Their leadership has been scattered throughout all of that empire, and it has been generations since anyone has known their homeland. They are feeling cut off, disconnected, hopeless. It's not like they're newly dead and on the verge of maybe a little bit of CPR that will bring them back. No, they are dry bones. No skin left, no lifeblood pumping through them, no breath. The land which God had given them, the temple that had been built on that land, their whole connection to God had been taken away. They were giving up. Why not just become part of this, these other nations within which they were now living? There's no way they're going to get back to their land. There's no way that they're going to reconnect with one another. There's no way that God still is their God and cares for them. But, but God says to Ezekiel, I see their plight. I see their sadness, their disconnectedness their hopelessness. And not only do I see it, but I am acting to correct it. I am actively working to bring them back, to reunite them, to give them breath once again. This, this reality in which they live now, this is not their reality for always. It will end. This seeming impossible act of bringing together dry bones and re-enfleshing them and giving it that breath to it so that it can be a being, a living being again. God can do that. And God is doing that. Where do we, as a community, as, a, as individuals, feel like the Israelite people, cut off, disconnected, hopeless? How has our very life been sucked from us, leaving us feeling that, really, there is no reason to think that things will be right again? Into these times, into these places, God speaks the same message of hope. I see you. I see your plight. And not only do I see it, but I am working to make it right. I will do the impossible. I will bring your dry bones back together. I will put life into them. Do not despair. 
Do not think that God is so distanced from you that you are completely cut off from God's love. God reaches out again and again to put new life into us and to send us forth to be God's people in the world. As the people of Israel, so we are given this word of hope. May it be so for us. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.